Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You know what it is, episode 44 for the love of the game. Let's get it rolling. DJ Felly Fell. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Check us out. Listen, listen. It's tricky, I'm picky, baby, but I just spotted you doing your thing. G strings, you strange point of view. Hey, let me your body, you got me in a zone. Bet a million and a half cash, I can make you explode. You don't wanna break the cold, you wanna date the cones. I can take you on out of limits away from home with your bills. Mommy wildin' for show in the middle of the club doing a rodeo show. The whole scene steamy, wet, dreamy, invisible sex, clean me. Incredible sex, you need me, you need me, please me, baby. Come on, baby, have a little crazy, but in the way that everybody plays me. Shorty drop her to the ground like she ain't got manners Too much booty for one man to handle When all I need is a one night scandal And I'ma get fucking hit Damn, little mama know you fit my standards You're the type to make me grip that handle Lick shots in the air, busting that random While you make it clap, 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 clap You gotta shake that thing, shake that thing While you make it clap, 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 clap Just okay. shake that thing, Ooh. shake that thing She can make it clap like a standing ovation Spin like my record at the radio Okay, okay, okay. You know what it is. Episode 44 for the love of the game with your boy, Aaron Tobin Hess. Uh, We've got an action-packed episode today. Uh, There is a lot that I need to get off my chest on today's episode. Uh, Truth be told, this is supposed to be an exceedingly joyous day. A joyous episode because March Madness is here. The bracket is set. The selection show happened yesterday evening. Wall-to-wall action starts on Thursday, where I and many Americans practically overdose on college basketball. It's just a wonderful day, wonderful two days, Thursday and Friday, uh, what should be a wonderful weekend. It's it's my favorite two days of the year. Um, it also means that spring is coming up, which means no more sub-freezing temperatures in New York. Things should be gravy. But then the sad realities of being a New York sports fan hit. And basically got in the way of those joyous feelings. So before I could comment and discuss on all the good stuff, mainly March Madness, we got to talk about the bad stuff. So let's start with the New York Knicks, who have been dreadful for years. Well, they made the news again, but not the players, not the coaches, not the general manager or the president of operations. But of course, it was the owner. The main reason this team is a circus, James Dolan acting like a complete jackass once again. If you haven't seen the video, here is a quick summary. A Knicks fan shouts at Dolan, and I quote, this is what he said, sell the team. That is what he said. No name calling, no profanity, no nothing, sell the team. And that petulant little child, Jimmy Dolan, who inherited everything he has from his father and never earned anything himself, who's been the worst owner in sports since he's taken over his team, reacts to this by telling a paying customer that he is no longer allowed in the garden and he can watch the games from now on on television. And he has security apprehend this guy and escort him out because he heard a fan say, and I quote again, sell the team. What an asshole. James Dolan, besides for Mayor de Blasio, is the most hated man in New York. He's a thin-skinned asshat who has zero positive qualities and has ruined the New York Knicks. He is the reason for almost 
all of their problems, it starts with him. To be that thin-skinned in NYC is laughable. Words cannot truly describe how much I loathe this man. I had the pleasure of being in MSG yesterday. The Knicks played the Lakers in a noon start. I got to witness LeBron James poop himself in the fourth quarter, which was wonderful. Missing 11 shots in the fourth and getting blocked by Mario Hazonia, of all people, to end the game. It was absolutely delightful. Even though I don't want the Knicks to win many games the rest of the year because we are not trying for Zion, uh, watching LeBron blow it in person was so incredibly gratifying. Shout out to my godmother, Ruth, for the amazing seats. Just a a tremendous experience. Anyway, uh, LeBron was at the free throw line. The place was quiet because... You know, the Knicks not being very good at all and the Lakers not being very good. Uh, You know, there's not a lot of juice in Madison Square Garden right now. But the place was quiet and I yelled, hey, Dolan, sell the team. I'm in section 118, seat two. Come and get me, buddy. Wishing that he would send security to kick me out, that jackass. And then he does this dreadful interview with Michael Kay, who, by the way, didn't press him nearly enough for all of his stupidity and shenanigans, where he legit sounds like a lunatic. And he's reading out of this binder. He doesn't even know his own players. Like, he's just such a joke. The Knicks have huge plans this summer. Huge plans. This is an exceedingly important summer for the New York Knicks. And it looks like the only thing that can possibly get in the way of it being a success is the one thing that can't get swept away. And that's good old Jimmy D. The fact that someone asked me this weekend if the Knicks gave up their next five first-round picks and it meant James Dolan would no longer be a part of the New York Knicks. The fact that I had to think about making that trade is just goes to show you how ridiculous this guy is. If he were to tragically get hit by a city bus tomorrow, and I'm not saying that he should because that's not nice, the city would absolutely rejoice. Jimmy, if you're listening... Get at me. Ban me from Madison Square Garden, you thin-skinned jackass. Well, from one fiasco to the next, and that's the life of a New York sports fan these days. The next dumpster fire comes from a team that basically for my entire life as being a fan, while they haven't always been good, they were at least run well and competent. But all of that has turned into dust, it seems like, where the New York Giants have basically turned into the New York Jets in terms of dysfunction. It's legit like Freaky Friday, and they've traded places. As you know by now, the news broke last week that the New York Giants traded star Odell Beckham Jr. to the Cleveland Browns for the 17th pick, a late third-round pick, and safety Jabril Peppers. They traded arguably the most dangerous offensive player in football, who was under contract with the cap rising, who's 26 years old, for a mid-first-round pick, a late third, and a mediocre at best safety. Absolutely laughable. That's maybe 40 cents on the dollar. Maybe. This trade is a complete joke. Keep in mind that general manager Dave Gettleman, who has zero cachet with this organization, comes out and says, we didn't sign Odell to trade him. We just got an offer we couldn't refuse. Really, bro? The draft is in a month. You're telling me that you couldn't start a bidding war between other teams to really get 
An offer that you couldn't refuse? This is the offer you couldn't refuse. Well, I find that exceedingly hard to believe. A mid-first, a late third, and Jabil Preppers? What an idiot this guy is. And let's break down all the reasons why this trade was so incredibly stupid. Let's start with illustrating just how good Odell Beckham Jr. is. And given the way the game is called, the way the rules are, and how wide receivers who are that good are so incredibly valuable, let me be very clear about something. I don't want to be misunderstood when I say this, and this is not hyperbole. Odell Beckham Jr. is the best wide receiver to come into the NFL since Randy Moss. Again, that's not hyperbole. He's the best wide receiver since Randy Moss. In his first 60 NFL games, he has the most touchdowns, the most receptions, and is second in yards per game to only Julio Jones. In a league where the passing game has become easier than ever, where wide receivers are able to run free and you can't jam them like you used to, a game-breaking wide receiver that is that great is exceedingly valuable. More valuable than ever before. So for those who say you don't win big with a big money wide receiver, well, that narrative is changing. I mean, Julio Jones led the Falcons to the Super Bowl, and they should have won if they didn't have the biggest collapse in Super Bowl history. The Giants' offense was close to five points per game better with Odell in the lineup than without him. Is he a bit of a hothead? Sure, sometimes, maybe. But he was never suspended and never missed a practice, let alone a game, if he was healthy. He was never called a bad teammate by any of his teammates. In fact, when he got that contract extension, everybody was happy for him because he earned it, because he works his ass off and is always at practice and always in shape. He's no Antonio Brown, let alone the headache that the media has portrayed him out to be. Would I be frustrated too if my quarterback mi missed me multiple times a game when I was wide open and consistently underthrew me on deep routes by two yards? It, damn right I'd be frustrated. The narrative that Odell was a problem for the Giants is so incredibly stupid. I hate to agree with Max Kellerman on ESPN because I think Max is generally wrong about everything, but he said it best. If you watch the games and you watch the tape, you can just see it. Odell pops off the screen. Odell is just different from everyone else in the league. To trade him for that haul is ridiculous. Now, Dave Gettleman says it's possible to win while rebuilding, and that's just not true. You have to pick a lane. You either try to win or you try and rebuild and you tear it all down. The Giants decided Eli had something left in the tank before last season, and that's why they signed Odell to a big extension. That's why they signed Nate Solder in the offseason. That's why they drafted Saquon Barkley with the number two pick as opposed to going to a quarterback. And these are all things that I defended, and I still defend. I still defend the Barkley pick. You know, Nate Solder didn't work out, but if you're going all in to win, that's fine. And Odell Beckham Jr., you're locking up one of the best players in the league at 25 years old, you know, have him under contract when the cap's rising. Those are all good things. I never bought into Sam Darnold. I still don't. So that was all fine and gravy. And Eli was terrible. Yeah, the offensive line took about nine games to be remotely decent, but he was awful. He missed open receivers. He was just dreadful. So now you're in a situation where you want to tear it all down. Bad business practice is to compound one mistake with another. 
And trading Odell Beckham Jr. for this haul, given the state of the NFL, is an absolute mistake. It's an absolute mistake. So now what do the Giants do? You could say, okay, fine. They're going to rebuild. Let's tear it all down. We have one more year left of Eli. We'll win three games. We'll get a top pick next year. The quarterback class next year is even better than this year. I think everybody agrees with that. Whether it's Tua or Fromm out of Georgia, fine. Fine. Then they go over the top and they pay Golden Tate, a nice player, but they give him $24 million guaranteed. He's 31. You're giving that guy big money when you had a guy who's about three to four times better than him, is five years younger than him, and you already had him under contract. Not to mention that the Giants then got Jabril Peppers in the trade to replace Landon Collins, who's a better player by all metrics, who you could have franchise tagged and you had under control for one year. And then when Eli's cap number, because they refused to release him because of the PR hit, when his cap number comes off, you then have a rookie quarterback with a good with a safety coming off the books for $11 million. If you want to re-sign him again or if you want to franchise tag him again for one more year, fine. You still have Odell under contract. You have Barkley on a rookie deal. Your starting quarterback is probably going to be on a rookie contract. Then you have something. But to do this half-assed measure to try and be competitive while rebuilding is just so idiotic. Like, Gettleman has no clue of how to run a franchise. None. And, and again... He's inherited a team from Jerry Reese, and Jerry Reese didn't do a great job the last couple of years, but at least he was responsible for two Super Bowl runs and two Super Bowl wins. He has cachet with the organization. This guy is a buffoon. An absolute buffoon. I mean, he, he doesn't have a clue. He's not staying in one lane or the other. He wants to have one foot in, one foot out in terms of a rebuild. And to say that Eli Manning like still has something, yes, he looked better at the end of the year when the offensive line came together. But he's still not a top 15 quarterback in the league, even with everything in place. And not to mention that Odell Beckham Jr. over Eli's career has made him look significantly better over his career. Let's pull up a couple of numbers here, you know. For, for all of those who are, are talking about, you know, the Giants' way or whatever, and, and Eli's still got it, let, let, let's look at a couple of statistics here. With Odell Beckham Jr., here are Eli's splits versus without him for the four years, right? Okay, here we go. Odell Beckham Jr., Eli's completion percentage is about 64%. Without it, it's 61%. Yards per attempt, 7.2 as opposed to 6.48 without him. TDs per game, 1.76 with them, 1.35 without them. INTs per game, 0.81 with them, 1 without them. Passing yards, 271.6 with them, 229.7 without them. Points scored per drive, 1.86 with them, 1.49 without them. Under what circumstances is Odell Beckham Jr. the problem here? And if you're trying to win now and 
maintain some sort of competitiveness with Eli Manning under center, why would you give him up? That, that's not the problem. So to then compound the, the Eli problem with trading Odell for 40 cents on the dollar and then not tanking properly makes absolutely no sense. You never trade an asset because, or I should say, you never rush to trade an asset. If you were really dead set on trading him, you have to start a bidding war and you have to get more for him. You have to get a first, a higher first, and at least a second round pick. I mean, as much as I hate the Patriots, Bill Belichick, in terms of a general manager, pretty much bats about an 85% clip in terms of success rate. Bill Belichick, it's been reported that he was all over Odell Beckham Jr. for the last two offseasons. He was ready to trade for for him last offseason while the Giants were renegotiating a contract. And he was willing to give him big money then. He was willing to trade a first-round pick, maybe multiple picks, after the Giants signed him to big money. You know what that should tell you if you're the guy holding that asset? Don't trade that asset! Because Bill Belichick wouldn't trade that asset. If Bill Belichick is looking to get your player, you hold on to that player. Because that guy is freaking good, and he's a game-changer. This was ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. The Giants have turned into the Jets. The most stable franchise of my fandom has turned into the other team that is completely instable and has been instable for years. I mean, as as a New York sports fan right now, this is as close to rock bottom as you're going to be. And the only way that it's going to get really, really worse is if, in fact, the Giants are this dumpster fire, the Knicks are screw up free agency and don't get the number one pick, that's when I have officially hit rock bottom. All right, and as I mentioned, we have an action-packed show. We're, tr- we're going to try and get two guests on, so we're going to jump into those interviews, um, or I should say discussions, right after this. Okay, uh, I know I promised everybody March Madness coverage, but if you heard from my... Uh the second half of my monologue, my rant about the New York Giants, I, I needed to have a little bit of a therapy session with the most knowledgeable uh, Giants fan I know. Um, He's a first-time guest. He's a friend of the show. Uh, Really, really knowledgeable football fan, way more so than myself. Uh, Introducing Mr. Shai Elberger. Shai, not good. Not good. No, thanks for having me. And um, no, not good at all. Not good Uh, at all. been pretty much drinking single malt scotch since the trade happened um and essentially it was i just could not i never wanted to believe the rumors that they were entertaining trades and all that nonsense i just refused to believe it and then when it happened i was a combination of angry sad and in disbelief so when the news breaks and you see it on twitter and i think Schefter had it first right it was it was Schefter or uh, Mike Garofolo. So what was your so, you're viewing your your smartphone? You've got Twitter open. What what is just like your just your first reaction? I actually had just walked into my apartment and uh, I'm in uh, several chats actually um, with 
one uh, of the famous Eric Zimmerman oh, who God. texted me, uh, texted in a group, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then a screenshot of the, ta- the tweet saying he was traded to the Browns, this is real, and I, I stood in the same spot face down texting people on Twitter for at least an hour straight. I think I pretty much I messed up my neck pretty badly actually the next day, just from staring at standing in the same spot for an hour. But I just could not believe it that it happened. It, it's it's unbelievably bad, and I, I want to talk about all the reasons why it was so bad. Uh, for me, it, it boils down to two things. One, the guy's twenty six years old, under contract with. The cap rising. He's already locked in. So you don't make a mistake, the Eli Manning mistake, and compound it with another mistake. And two, when you have an asset that is valued the way it is, considering the way wide receivers are used in today's league, and when you have a guy who's so transcendent, if you're looking to trade him, you got to start a bidding war. And you can't just settle for 40 cents on the dollar because maybe he's a distraction. What say you? I completely agree. I I never bought into the whole distraction thing anyway. I I just think that's such a a fan-created thing. Like, we had never heard once in five years any of his teammates disliked him. He, like, for me, I care, does a guy play well? Does he perform well? That, to me, is more important than a distraction. Um, so I just, yeah, like they signed him to an extension last year. He's pretty much, like, over the next few years, going to be relatively underpaid once other receivers start getting paid more than him. Um, and it's just, like, aside from, like, the dead cap money, all that stuff that makes it even more of a bad trade, I just don't, I've never, I, I wouldn't believe that we would trade in his prime arguably the best player at his position because he was potentially a distraction. I, it's just hard to believe. And yeah, the, the getting 40 cents on the dollar. Also, I, I was assuming the giants had been turning down trade offers like this and were holding out for two first round picks uh, higher than 17, maybe a top 10 at least. And so like, I, I was also just thinking like, that's what they got. Um, and admittedly, I don't know much about Jabril Peppers. I know he was highly touted. He's from New Jersey. He's pretty good. But, you know, he right, he's going to be compared to Landon Collins, and he's going to be compared to did, is, was he enough, basically, for Odell along with the picks. Well, he's not as good as Landon Collins, and they had the opportunity to franchise Landon Collins and hold him for a year because, you know, the looming situation, as you well know, is is the Eli Manning looming situation and his salary number and his standing with the franchise and all that kind of stuff and they could save seventeen million dollars if they just cut him. They're ne- they're not going to do that and take the PR hit. So it's like they're standing with like one foot in, one foot out in terms of a rebuild and and trying to be competitive because they think well, that-, that he can be. You know, competent if the offensive line was de- is decent. And, yeah, he played a little bit better at the end of the year last year. But, I mean, and I was more of an Eli apologist at the, going into last year than you were. But, I mean, it, it's just over. 
So, but if you're going to pay him starting, you know, quarterback money, then you're going to try and put the best weapons around him to make the team competitive, correct? That, that's it. That's what is so obvious. And everyone who's been writing articles about it, that's like the Giants don't have a, a plan. It seems like it's, they do two moves in one direction and then two moves in another direction. So, like, I get it. Last year they wanted to go for it. They failed. Um, and that happens. Guess, and it had like, whatever. I, I, I'm still, I, you know, I love Saquon, obviously was taking a quarterback, the better choice. I think that's TBD still, but whatever they went for it. I'm all four teams trying to win. But the fact that they were not even moving on from him this off season and don't get me wrong. I currently in the, for the last few years, I have not been on the Eli side. I think he needs to be replaced. But that I was not an Eli hater for his career. I loved Eli. I have a dog named Eli. Eli had two of the great gave me the two best years ever. But he just has not been good for so long, and it seems so obvious to me and to everyone else who's not in the Giants front office. And I, like him, I really think the Odell distractions just comes back to playing with Eli, like. He, they all watch in the film room during the week the same things we're watching on TV. Guys wide open, him not hitting them, whatever. I don't need to get into all the Eli shortcomings. He, there's no way he was happy playing with Eli. And to me, like, you get rid of a guy who's so pissed off from losing that you call him a distraction. So you get rid of him, but you keep the guy who behaves well but is arguably the main cause for the losing. Like, that just – money aside even – it just doesn't seem logical to me. And like the one person who tried moving on from Eli, Ben McAdoo, although he did not do it in the best way, he got fired two weeks later. It's like comical at this point almost. And, and what, what honestly, what really worries me is that Eli has like, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Giants win the Super Bowl this year. Okay. I really hope I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But Eli has a semi decent year. They go six and 10. He's okay. And they're like, you know, he just needs uh, some more uh, O-line, more protection, uh, a two-year extension. And it's just like never ends. And uh, that, that is, um, that, that's my long-term fear. Obviously, short-term is I think will probably be quite bad this year. But that's picking a lane. Picking a lane, is, if being right. bad is a right. lane, stay in the lane. Commit to Eli this year and then don't trade away his best weapon by far. Um, I mean, we've seen the, the stats on Twitter, Eli with and without OBJ. They're embarrassing. His uh, yards per attempt in the games that Beckham has not played is ranked 40th out of 41 quarterbacks. The only person he beat, Brock Osweiler. Um, not good company. No, that is not good company. I, I'm afraid to see who's even ahead of him at 39 and 38. Yards per game without Beckham, 230 yards per game. That is like 1986 football. That's that's like 28th best probably in the NFL. Like his numbers without Beckham are atrocious. Atrocious. And I, I think if Beckham had never been drafted, honestly, there's a good chance Eli would not still be playing in the NFL. So it's kind of ironic and a sad irony that there there's potentially some truth to the fact to that Beckham extended Eli's career, which in turn pissed off Beckham enough where he was a so-called distraction and he got traded away. So it, it's, it's so bad. I mean, they've turned into the New York Jets. 
Never in my lifetime would I think that the New York Giants, who even when they weren't good, they still were run well for the most part. Even when they weren't good or run right. well, now it's just a dumpster fire. I just – it's crazy to think if you look back at January 2016, which is just two years ago, the Giants were coming off a playoff loss but a good season. They had all the new defensive players that were good. Beckham had a monster year. 2016, things looking up. The Browns about to probably were whatever, 3-13, and 13, and about to have an 0-16 season the following year. And literally less than uh, two years later, the Giants are in contention for a top three pick and are embarrassingly run. And the Browns are division favorite Super Bowl contender. So that's just unbelievable. Two different, uh, two different ways to, to manage a team. And to think that the Giants could have had John Dorsey running their team as opposed yeah. to Dave uh, I Gettleman. I also think a lot of the, the Brown stuff was set up for him. But just talking about uh, a waste of OBJ's time here, I, I, like, I feel bad for him that Haval Alazman for OBJ, that he finally now gets to go to the Browns, a good team with a good quarterback. Baker's going to be throwing him bombs. Um, and it's just, I, I haven't, I'm still in a bad mood, honestly. I don't even remember. If the funny thing is, is I was still pissed from Landon Collins going to the Redskins. I felt like I hadn't done my morning yet for that. And then this breaks and I almost forget about Landon Collins because I'm so angry and sad about this. The Landon Collins thing. Yeah. I mean, say what you want about the franchise tag and the franchise tag undercuts the NFL players. I mean, it's embarrassment that there is a franchise tag, but that's what it's in place for, for the Giants to use. Right. And, uh, and they didn't use guy. it. And fine. So we got the long-term deal with big money from Washington. Okay, fine. You know, the Ver- Olivier Vernon trade was actually a pretty good trade. I mean, he was going to be a cap casualty anyway. Yeah, I, fine. Uh, I, I was on board with that trade. But this, this is just, this is so obscene. It, I, I hope, and I, but I feel like we will look back at this in five years, even 10, like as we're going and just whatever Beckham ends up with career wise totals and postseason success, if he has or not, but either way, as long as he stays healthy and like the possibility of remembering like the giants traded this guy in his prime and they kept Eli while they had like eight losing seasons in a row. And Beckham just went on and continued his ridiculous career. In a league where passing has become so much more important and every rule favors the playmaker. Right. And yet Dave Gettleman wants to be a run-first team in the year 2019. But the thing is also, back to what we were saying, like he, he does two things. In this direction, he doesn't pick a lane. Like he, what he said when when we traded for Jabril Peppers is, you know, safety's got to be uh, really good in pass protection, not just run defense. Like clearly a shot at Landon Collins, whatever. But isn't that also at the same time admitting that it is a passing league? Like the safety needs to be pass defense, and then you're trading your the best receiver in the NFL for a draft pick where you're gonna get whatever, whatever you'll get, you'll get good stuff. But number one receiver. Best receiver in the NFL, I thought it was a passing league, but no, not when your quarterback is Eli. It's unfortunately not a passing league. And then to compound that and sign Golden Tate 
Yeah. um, Who's not a bad player, but like, what are we doing? He's going to help you win games. I I like Golden Tate, the player, but you know, else I happen to like a lot is Sterling Shepard. And this just makes me almost convinced that Shepard is playing his last season here um, because they're just a similar kind of skill set. And Tate's older and more expensive, so I don't know why he did that. But it seems like if you really look at the contract from what I saw on Twitter, it's more like a two-year deal they can get out of. So for that, I mean, I don't mind adding weapons. Like, the thing is, like, I'm not rooting for the Giants to go 0-16 and get the first pick. I'm still going to want them to win games until maybe it gets to the point where it's like 1-10. And I'm still rooting for them, but I'm also not upset if they lose and kind of want to see how bad it could potentially get. Um, but, like, oh, Gary, Golden Tate's a good player. It just, again, it's like they're trading back up, so they're clearly tanking this year. But then they're trading for a veteran receiver who's actually pretty good and giving him a decent-sized contract. That doesn't really make sense. Makes no sense. So now we're here. We're sad, but we're here. The Giants now have the sixth pick in the draft, the 17th pick in the draft. Where do you want them to go with these picks? Uh, what I would really be in favor for, and I admit, full disclosure, I do not watch college football, so I have no good insight into which prospects are good. I just read stuff on the internet. So given that I have no clue which of these quarterbacks, if any, are going to be good, Dwayne Haskins, uh, Kyler Murray, the Daniel Jones, whoever else, the same thing goes for last year. I think Darnold showed promise. Uh, Rosen, bad, but we don't know yet. Josh Allen, kind of potential. And Lamar Jackson's kind of different breed, but he was good. And so I just, in my mind, I don't know what the Cardinals are going to end up accepting because I do think they're drafting Murray. If we could trade for Josh Rosen for a two or a three and a six or like something like that, not a first-round pick, I would be all in favor of that. It's just a simple matter of, we'd be getting one of the top QBs from the last two years at a discounted rate. So we wouldn't be spending our sixth pick or 17. We'd be spending a third round pick for who was, we ended up with Saquon and Rosen from last year, which I think, and two first round picks this year, which last year would have seemed an impossible situation. At least that would show me like a plan of action. Like they are planning for Eli literally to finally have a replacement. Until they do that, if they just bypass quarterback and go linebacker, uh, O-line, linebacker, whatever, then it's just like there is a legit chance that Eli is starting next season also. And and that's no way. No way. Terrifying to me. No way. Here, here, so I, yeah. Here's my take on this. I agree with you with the Rosen thing. That should be uh, prime uh, option number one. My, my biggest fear – is and again this is from what i've heard because like you i'm not a college football expert next year's qb class is going to be way better than this year's class whether it's 2-0 whether it's from uh to georgia whatever do not take a quarterback with the sixth pick this year don't do it just wait roll it over again and wait and take one of these defensive guys that are apparently it's a defense rich draft Take right. the best players available. Roll it over. Do not package six and seventeen or whatever you have to do to go to get Kyler Murray at one. No, thank you. 
Like, Odell didn't get sacrificed to then trade up to get Kyler Murray. Like, uh, like that, that would be insane. And just roll it over, and if you have to move up next year to get Fromm from Georgia or to get Tua from Alabama, do it. But just don't and let Eli ride out into the sunset. But, but So what does that mean, though? Because Eli's contract, this is the last year of his contract. So it comes off the books. Next year, you have – that's it, and it's done. It's finished. You have that rookie starting. Yes. And you know yeah, what would have looked really nice along with a rookie quarterback on a rookie contract? Yeah, Odell Beckham Jr. lining right. up at wide receiver. Right. I love uh, the same people I see on Twitter saying uh, – uh, can you imagine if the Giants drafted one of these quarterbacks and Odell, uh, how pissed he would be if the rookie, like, bad influence, you'd get angry if the rookie was bad and he'd want the ball, and then he goes to the Browns with Baker Mayfield, and the same people are like, he is going to dominate with the Browns. Him and Baker are going to go off. It's like, yeah, why couldn't that have happened if the Giants drafted a rookie quarterback? Like, he would have been a great influence on a rookie quarterback. I think you'd want to surround him with Beckham and Barkley. But honestly, I'm talking about, yeah, it's hard to talk about. Sucks. All uh, right. The issue, the, the issue, let me just say one more thing. The issue with waiting for a quarterback next year is that, for all you know, next year there's eight teams who are all in play for the number two, for two, you know, for any of the quarterbacks. And now you're competing with eight teams. The you know, Giants go seven and nine. They have the 15th pick. And, you know, then you're screwed. But then you got to do it. But then you do what you, whatever you have to do at that point. At that point, you've gotten to a point of no return because Eli's on his last year of his deal. You don't have a backup that's anywhere close. At that point, you go all in. You're the Jets going after Darnold at that point. You I, I, go I all in. Only, I think the only way the Giants move on is if Eli stops, stops drinking his daily uh, glass of pomegranate juice and, and gets injured for once. Right. Well... Uh, I don't hope for injury, but sometimes you have to hope for injury. I, I'm, I'm talking uh, ankle sprain. Uh, ankle sprain. All right, Shy. Well, ankle sprain. Just need one one game for uh, anyone to come in and play well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well. Anyway, Shy. This was this was wonderful. I wish we had happier news to talk about, but after the draft, we're gonna have to uh, have to reconvene and do this again. Yeah, hopefully, and, uh, hopefully the draft brings us good news and not some crazy ass picks that we did. Uh, all right. Um, I'll dress up a little nicer than last time. I'm in sweatpants now, but I'll, I'll, I'll wear a turtleneck next time. Love it. Love it. All right, Shy. I'll speak to you later, buddy. Thanks all for right, coming on. Thank you. All right. Yep. Bye. Okay. As I teased before, we went from uh, sad thoughts, and now we're putting that behind us. Uh, James Dolan is an idiot. The New York Giants have become the New York Jets. But it is that time of the year. March Madness. This is one of my favorite shows to do with one of my favorite recurring guests. He was on last time, but we had to bring him back to preview the bracket. Selection Sunday is uh, a thing of the past. Jordan, we're here. Finally. March has finally arrived. I I just had a, um, a, a Giants fan on. We were talking about the Odell Beckham trade and how much of a disaster it was. So I really need a palate cleanser right now. So let's talk college hoops. Let's dive in. I wanted, We're going to talk a lot about this year's bracket, um, a lot about you know the committee and how they did. We're going to preview games. Um, but before, before we get into all of that, I just wanted to touch on one thing about the conference tournaments. And I know everybody's hearing, you know, Duke at nauseum. 
But we need to talk about this Duke-UNC game that happened, um, which to me was the best game of the conference tournaments. I mean, w- <sighs> magnificent. Yeah, it's uh, it a high-level game. I mean, at, whenever we have these conversations before we're about to talk, I always, uh, I always say, okay, not too much Zion this time. Okay, not too much Zion this time. But it's impossible to avoid. He is overshadowing, and rightfully so, this, in, this entire 2018-19 season. And, and, and this, his conference tournament, I mean, it, it, it was outstanding. Uh, that game, I mean, he clearly made a difference from the first two matchups in the regular season sweep uh, on both ends of the floor. I mean, it, he, Duke was finally able to establish a defensive presence on the inside. I mean, six-block shots. Really made life difficult for Garrison Brooks and Luke May. Uh, I mean, Duke's defense was, was great all tournament, but like it, it really forced UNC to try to make difficult jump shots. And you just saw like they just couldn't they couldn't knock one down from the perimeter. I mean, both teams really played at a high level, but uh, you, you and I were talking about those three ACC teams getting in, and as much as I wanted to doubt you uh, after that game. And then when Tennessee lost, there was really no other way to go about it. Those are three of the best teams in college basketball, and and I don't really have any qualms with with what the committee did. That game became a street fight at the end. And as great as Zion was, and let's just put this into perspective, in three games in the ACC tournament, Zion Williamson scored 81 points. Going into the championship game, he was – 26 of 32 for 60 points. I mean, just ridiculous. And he showed the ability to pass, the rebounding, the defense. I mean, I can't we can't say enough good things about him because I'm I'm so invested in Zion being a Knicks fan. But I want to talk about UNC for a second, a team that's kind of gone under the radar a little bit. You know, to hold up that well and and to and to have it be a fight the way that it was. I mean, to me, after that game, it looked like those were the two best teams in college basketball. Yeah, it's 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 hard to argue. I mean, after Virginia faltered earlier in the tournament, I mean, UNC looked great. Uh, they they really looked great. They were able they were able to actually out rebound Duke in the game. Um, what's his name? Uh, Cam Johnson had an awesome game. Uh, I really awesome. do think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, as much as like I faltered, like Duke for. Miss, I mean, uh, UNC for missing all those jump shots. It, they still were, were they not up at halftime? I mean, it was a great game. It was a high-level game. Unbelievable. If, you know, the way the bracket comes out, and we're, we're going to talk about that right now, you know, there's a really good possibility that the fourth trilogy, or I should say the fourth installment, because the third would be the trilogy. The, fourth the first inst- time ever. Fourth installment could be the title game. Uh, absolutely. So totally that, see that. Yeah, so now let's, um, you know, that, that's a good transition to talking about uh, the bracket was released yesterday. So what was your immediate reaction when everything was released? Because for me, I thought the committee actually, you know, had one of its best selection jobs in a while. Right, so immediate reaction uh, for me, for, for number one, it's always where is Michigan going to be? And, and then number two is the rest of the field. So as they were releasing, uh, as they were releasing the field, and I see that uh, Michigan State ends up 
as the two seed in Duke's region, I just thought to myself, wow, these Sunday games really just don't matter. And, and I really feel like uh, they had the bracket set, but like Saturday night after, after the uh, ACC final. Um, but, but as a field as a whole, I, I think it's, it's right where it should be. I don't really have any qualms in any teams getting, getting in or getting left out. I think this year they definitely used uh, the net ranking, the, safe, the computer metrics quite a bit more. Um, but they also didn't leave out the eye test, and you can see that from those ACC teams getting in, and then a few of the bubble teams that actually got in in, uh, in St. John's for sure. But, uh, yeah, the Michigan State thing leapt out to me I, I, right off the onset. I mean, I think they should have these tournaments. If they're going to actually not count the Sunday games, let, the, let all the tournaments start on Tuesday or Wednesday and finish them up by Saturday, maybe have a championship Friday night. I mean – if you're releasing the bracket 20 minutes after that Michigan Michigan State game, and and they probably had that finalized and out to the media so they can analyze it, um, there's no way they're counting that game. <laughs> so my whole thing was even with Michigan State, and I I'm with you because I think the one real qualm I had was Michigan State getting screwed, but that's also because they could have easily been a one seed and knocked out Gonzaga. Or, but if they're the two seed, like, you saw Duke finish out their tourney run on Saturday night. I know they wanted to use this net rating thing, but, like, Duke with Zion is different. It's just different. You have to use the eye test and, and show that they're different. And to give Michigan State, who at worst is the, is the best two seed, to give them Duke, who probably with Zion is the best one seed, like that's where I had the issue. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they do that, that S curve thing anymore. I think that where they don't they don't rank the number one overall with the worst two. I think they just do it by region, and the coaches submit where they want to be from a location standpoint. And I mean, Duke gets their East region, um, and then it goes from there. I. I it, it, it does baffle me, though. It really should be a matchups thing. Like, who cares if you're going to Louisville Kent, or Kansas City or whatever? It, it really should be matchup and less about the travel. So I also thought Michigan, as, as a two that didn't win their conference tournament, got a pretty good draw for, for them. I mean, I thought they got a more favorable draw than Michigan State, who they lost to three times this year. Absolutely. I, I mean... Michigan definitely got a good draw. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any doubt in my mind that Michigan would be a two. I didn't think they would ever drop off the two line uh, just for losing in a less, you know, a one possession game to Michigan State in, in the championship after dominating their previous two opponents in the conference tournament. But, you know, I, I'm obviously ecstatic with the draw compared to what Michigan State got. Uh, still a little nervous about uh, the Nevada-Florida matchup and then, you know, you get a tough defensive team in Texas Tech in the next round, so we'll, well see. Well, Nevada—I mean, Nevada was a was a top ten team at one point this year, so that's a little—that's for them to be a seven seed is a little crazy. Um, but I also thought that uh, Virginia, which apparently is is the number one overall seed, I think they have the hardest road to the Final Four of any one seed, and I think UNC has the easiest road out of all the one seeds to the Elite Eight. Yeah, so let's dig into this a little because yeah, I, I, I thought I thought you were gonna 
I thought you were going to have me answer some a question like heart, the region of death or the easiest road. Uh, I kind of disagree. I think, I think that UVA's region is not necessarily the more difficult region. I think it's, I don't want to say the most boring region, but I mean, you are talking about some slow teams. They play low possession basketball, right? Uh, really value the basketball. I mean, you got Tennessee, Virginia, Wisconsin, Cincinnati. These are great pack line defenses. Uh, they're not looking to run and gun. This is not like a UNC style offense. This is not like a VCU full court press. Uh, these are just slow teams. They're going to rely on like jump shooting and getting the ball inside. Um, so I don't think so, that's necessarily the the most difficult region. I think the the more difficult region is UNC's region. Um, I actually think UNC has the toughest eight seed. Uh, in Utah State, uh, Sam Merrill is a really under the radar, awesome six-five junior guard. Uh, then you get like the SEC champ in Auburn, who, if you remember, was a top-five team at one point in the, in the year. Yeah, and that's then tough. Now they're now they're playing great basketball. Uh, you get Kansas, which is just you know a high pedigree team. You get the AAC champs in Houston. Then Kentucky's talent. I mean. That's a good overall region. And then you're looking at Wofford. Was the, I know people, this isn't last year's Wofford. This isn't the year prior. This is the longest, the nation's longest winning streak. They have uh, Dylan Wingler. Like, this is a good Wofford basketball team. There's a reason they're a seven seed. So I think that's a real tough region. So just to get back to Virginia for a second, who has notoriously not been great in the tournament, not even talking about last year. Um <sighs> So you're saying that the style of play of the teams that they're going against basically fits into their hands because they do they all do the same thing except Virginia does it better. Yeah, I do. I I, I think that if Virginia, I think if you're playing against a team that is going to thrive off like three point shooting, that's maybe more prime for an upset. But or if they have like a bunch of good bigs that can shoot, I I don't think any of these teams are like that. I think these teams. Will, play into their hands and their and this Virginia team especially this year I don't think it's like last year's team I think now they have two first round picks I mean DeAndre Hunter is supposed to be a lottery pick Ty Jerome is going late first round like this is a good team and they definitely have a chip on their shoulder this year yeah I mean after last year's result I if they don't get to the Sweet 16, not that Tony Bennett would ever be on the uh, on the hot seat. Oh God, no! But like at a certain point, you got to question if if they have just whatever that mojo is that they need um, to win in the tournament. If if they have it, considering how great they've been as a regular season team over the last five years, I mean, I mean they've been excellent. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, a couple of the, the good uh, higher seeds. Um, you know, what team, given where they were seeded and, and which region they're in, five seed or higher, do you really think can cause some real craziness? You know, maybe get to the Sweet 16 or beyond. So in terms of a five seed or higher, I really like this UC Irvine team. Um, they're entering the tournament with six, reeling off 16 straight wins, playing great basketball. They are one of the most experienced teams in college basketball. They also have two upperclassmen guards 
and Max Hazard and Evan Leonard that are going to be that is the key to as you always you I know you we've talked about this but having high level upper upperclassmen guards is key for March. Yep. Low tempo again, value of the ball. They're not going to turn the ball over, and they're an outstanding three point shooting team. So to compound that, they have the best two point defense in the country. So that kind of is crazy because now in the first round they're going to play Kansas State, which I think was overseeded at a four. Kansas State's missing their best player in Dean Wade. And if you look from start to finish, they had him throughout most of the season. Uh, and Kansas State is not looking great right now. And then again, you're going to get Wisconsin or Oregon. And people are, I think Oregon's favored in that first round game. Or, the, so, or, I, or I heard that it, they're like a, a one and a half point underdog. Or something right. like, like like that, and then you'll get them. In, you'll get them in San Jose, so it's not that far. So like, this is this is a UC Irvine team that I think I think could definitely make a run. Um, and then in terms of another higher than what'd you say, higher than a five seed? Yeah, higher than a five seed. Yeah, but I, I'm going a little deeper than that. Uh, I like Murray State a lot. I mean, I know we're going to talk about. Uh, talk about our favorite first round matchups. Yeah, but oh my God, Murray State is. It, I could we could talk about John Morant for days because probably. Oh shit! Hi, Shy. I'm in the middle. I'll call you back later. All right. Fuck. Fuck. All right. Well, there's gonna be more editing. Lost you there. Yeah, I lost you there. Okay, so um, so uh, go back. You were talking about Murray State, uh, Marquette, Murray State. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Murray State. Uh, it's this is going to be a high level basketball game. I mean, it highlights two of the best players in the country. I think people have seen a little bit of Marcus Howard, but I don't think people have seen a lot of John Morant. And I know the NBA nerds can't freaking wait for this game. Um, Murray State's not just uh, John Morant, though, that's the thing. Murray State has great interior defense. They're a superb three-point shooting team. Um, you have Shaq Buchanan, who's another high-level guard. I think that this Murray State team absolutely has what it takes to not only get past Marquette and Marcus Howard, but definitely take on Florida State, who is a pretty poor shooting team. And what they do best is at the basket, and Murray State is elite at defending around the rim. Interesting. So I didn't know that about Murray State and defending the rim. I mean, I know that because of John Morant, uh, that everybody who picks the 12-5, because there's always one or two a year, uh, that Murray State is going to be penciled in on everybody's bracket. The the You know, over the five seeds that I like the most, I'm starting with actually uh, – my brother and your brother's uh, Maryland team. They have a lottery pick. Um, I, I think their guard play is solid. You know, Bruno Fernando is is going to be a top ten pick maybe in the NBA draft. Like that's a team that could that can get kind of streaky uh, to me. And the other one that that kind of jumped out at me a little bit. Um, I know you disagree, um, but you know, for going five seed or above is this this Villanova team. Now, I know that they weren't very good this year, but there's something about their pedigree 
and, and how great they've been the last three years, last four years. That as a six seed, it's it's just a dangerous six seed to see them seated where they are. To me, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna. I was told not to bash on Maryland, so I don't know if I'm gonna do that because. But I don't like inexperience, and they are a lot of young players. I get it. They have two definite two NBA bigs, and I don't like when teams turn the ball over as much as they do and have done during the regular season. So. That playing against a Belmont team that just is, or Temple that is so glad that it's in a tournament. There's always one of those Dayton teams that gets to the next round. Um, that is 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 a, is a tall order. Uh, in terms of Villanova, uh, yes, we discussed this. I don't think that they're underseeded. Um, no, do I don't I think, think they're underseeded either. Right? Yeah. No, I think they're right where they should, they should be. I mean. Listen, this is still a great Villanova offense. Like, is, is it last year? No, but it, it still has Phil Booth and Colin Gillespie and Jermaine Samuel. I mean, this is, a, this is still a good offense. I, I just think that there's something about Villanova as of late that it, it's just not clicking. And St. Mary's is definitely a bid stealer, right? And even if St. Mary's is going to have to go across the country and play in Hartford, Connecticut, um, against this Villanova team, uh, I think they'll definitely give them, give them a challenge. Um, but again, I, I, I'm not sure that I necessarily want to pick them to go that deep in the field. Conversely, which top four seed do you feel least confident about? And in fact, you know, most confident that could easily lose day one or day two. Gosh, I, I already mentioned Kansas State, so I'm not going to talk about that again. But, oh, yeah, Kansas State, sure. I will absolutely pick them. Um, and then I'm going to pick a team that we've been talking about on and off all season. Um, I think that's – I'm going to pick Kansas, and, and I'll tell you why. That's who I had uh, circled. That was my number one pick that I had circled. Yeah. I uh, don't get this Kansas team. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a weird team. And they're they're not playing. They don't have a good matchup. They're playing against a team that shoots about twenty five to thirty three as a game and hits them at over a forty percent clip in Northeastern. They have a, a real dominant, like six foot nine, like European big who shoots the three. They they call him the Colonial Athletics, Colonial Athletic Association's Luka Doncic. Uh, he's He's a great player, and uh, they're playing them in the first round. And a team that shoots threes and has like a good like European experience talent, uh, I think that, that that's a that's a tough uh, that's a tough matchup for them. Moving on along, um, obviously we love the first two days more than anything. Um, who are your favorite first two day games that that you would circle? That if you had to watch one game or a couple of games from start to finish, because there's going to be a lot of ADD going on, flipping back between channels. But if you had to uh, to try and catch all the action, but if you had to watch, you know, these games from start to finish, what do you have your eye on for the first two days? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you got to look at those, uh, those 7, 10, 8, 9 matchups. Those are usually the most tasty, the, the closest uh, point spreads. So... The Cincinnati Iowa game to me is is such an interesting game. I mean, you've got 
of this one of the slowest teams for the past decade uh, in Cincinnati. Awesome defense, right? They really value the ball. Um, they're looking to go inside all the time. Uh, Jerron Cumberland, uh, Keith Williams, nice wings, really good on ball defenders. And then you're playing against this high-octane, crazy Iowa team that loves to kick it out to their shoot. They have four guys shooting over a 40% clip from the perimeter. They love to get it down low to Luca Garza. I think that's just a really, really interesting matchup uh, that I think people are not looking – they're not looking that highly on Cincinnati that I think Cincinnati will advance there. Um, and then I really like this uh, – this Baylor-Syracuse game, I, I don't think a lot of people are looking at this, but in this Baylor-Syracuse game, you're looking at a 1-3-1 versus a 2-3 zone. Uh, it's obviously for basketball nerds, but you're looking at Scott Drew, Jim Behan, both both like Mike Krzyzewski's best friends in the, in, the, in the country. And these are just great coaches that have been around for such a long time. Um, you've got some really good young talent on both sides of the ball. And, and I think that's going to be a real high level game as well in the first round. So that I had that one circled, but the two that sort of jumped out to me is uh, this Nevada, Florida game. Um, or I should say three Nevada, Florida. Um, you know, Florida had a great run in the sec uh, tournament. Nevada was, you know, at one point, a top 10 team, a very dangerous seven seed. Uh, the other two that I had is, I mean, Murray State and Marquette. Um, and, and we mentioned um, Wisconsin. Yeah, I, still wanna, I don't want right, to so say wanna the repeat that. The other one is this Buffalo team against the winner of uh, Arizona State or St. John's. Obviously, being from New York, you know, we want the Johnnies in. Um and if St. John's were to win, and considering the year that Buffalo had, and as impressive as they were, you know that's just something to keep an eye on. Uh, it was, yeah, it was something that I that I kind of liked a lot. And apparently, a lot of people like this VCU UCF um, matchup uh, with this guy Taco Falls. Um, Have you ever seen him play? So I've <laughs> always seen basic highlights. I mean, he's a monster. Isn't I have never seen anything like Taco Falls. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that should be interesting. But I really, I'm intrigued to see what happens with Buffalo and either Arizona State under Bobby Hurley or St. John's. Uh, obviously, pulling for the Johnnies here. Um, before we wrap up, obviously, you know how we always have to do it. Um, we have to make our predictions, and they're obviously not going to go well. Um, but we do them anyway. Uh, so yeah, uh, let's let's get your final four, and. Um, and, uh, and who takes it down. Right. So these are, you can really got to say sorry to all these fan bases as these teams will likely be out in the uh, Street 16. So um, let's start with the top of the bracket. I think in the East region, I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to pick against Duke. Um, so I'm going to have to go with Duke. I, I think, God, that, that Duke-Michigan State matchup would be so awesome if we can get Trey Jones trying to guard Cassius Winston and then Xavier Tillman and Nick Ward and Kenny Goyne trying to come out and guard Zion and RJ. It would be, it would really be a real high level basketball game that I hope we could see in the elite eight. But yeah, I'm going to have to take Duke to advance just because 
Zion's all world right now. I, I don't think anything's stopping him. Uh, and, and down in the West region, um, yeah, I, I'm probably going to still uh, stick with um, – I would love to take Michigan. I, I think there's a point in the tournament where they go on a scoring drought and uh, just can't keep pace with some of these teams that might um, might be able to convert. Um, and so I think I'm going to stick with Gonzaga. I know it's a little chalky, but – this Gonzaga team, even though they they got jumped at St. Mary's, I mean that's a team that's that's seen them several times this season. Um, but this Gonzaga team is a, is an, an almost impossible team to prepare for. As I said before, that their offense is better when than when they were a runner up two years ago. I mean this is a really high level Gonzaga team. Um, and then we'll we'll go around to the Midwest and. Uh, in this region, it, it's 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 a little difficult for me because as much as I want to not pick chalk, you're I doing am, it. You're doing I'm, it. No, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna pick uh, UNC. I, I was gonna pick Kentucky, but honestly, I'm probably gonna pick Wofford to make the Sweet Sixteen. I like. Um, it. I I just North Carolina is play, playing so damn well. I, so hard to pick against them. And this Kentucky, uh, they, this Kentucky team scares me. And as yeah. you know, we both, jo- you know, are in a pool um, with uh, our guy Scott Krinsky. I mean, I think Kentucky as a two seed is is one of the guys you pick early on because I'm just scared about them. But anyway, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But and North Carolina, if you've watched them earlier in the season, uh, they're not the same. Kobe White is not the same Kobe White anymore. It, it's just not. He's playing at a different level and. And I think that's really going to take them deep into this tournament and into the Final Four. Um, and then, as much as I wanted to pick Virginia, I, I really think that I think the best possible like storybook ending would be Virginia winning the national championship this year. I, I do think Tennessee's experience, uh, their defense, Grant Williams has been on another level this year. I think Tennessee is going to be um, catapulted into the Final Four. So Tennessee, UNC, Gonzaga, and Duke, and uh, we'll see. I'm with you on basically all of that except for one. Um, I have your Michigan Wolverines going to the Final Four. And it's tradition. I cannot pick them. <laughs> I, I have your Michigan Wolverines going to the Final Four because uh, if John Beeline is not the best coach in college basketball right at the moment – he sure is one of the five best coaches, and they always do well in the tournament. I just – there's something about them. So I've got Duke, I've got Michigan, I've got uh, Tennessee, and I've got UNC, and I have the uh, fourth installment of Duke-UNC in the finals. And, As do I. As do I. And, and, and I have UNC winning it, damn it. I have it. I uh, yeah. No, I, I no, I don't. I'm not. I'm not picking them. I, I'm picking Duke because Zion is just just ridiculous. He is just next level. Yeah, next level. He is. Next level. All right, Jordan. Uh, this was great as always, and we're probably gonna have to hopefully do this before the Sweet Sixteen again and uh, recap the madness and uh, and happy Thursday and Friday. It should be a great great opening weekend like it always is. Absolutely. Looking forward to talking about Zion in two weeks. Absolutely. Speak to you soon. (laughs) All right. Take care. All right. We're wrapping up.
Let me just get the uh, music and then we're done. Okay. All right, here we go. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. First time guest, Shai Elberger, crying about the loss of Odell Beckham Jr. And, of course, to one of my favorite recurring guests, Mr. Jordan Marks, previewing the NCAA tournament, uh, analyzing the bracket after Selection Sunday in preparation for the best two days of the year, Thursday and Friday. And that is the latest installment of For the Love of the Game, episode 44. Take us out, DJ Felly Fell. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.